You're listening to the Talking Rheumatology Spotlight podcast, brought to you by the British Society for Rheumatology. So hello, everyone, and welcome to this British Society for Rheumatology Talking Rheumatology Spotlight. You join us recording in January 2023. It's the dawn of a new year, and we're really excited to focus on hypermobility for this month's BSR e-learning. My name's Will Gregory, consultant physiotherapist at Salford Royal Hospital in Greater Manchester, and our guest speaker today is Dr. Philip Bull, consultant rheumatologist. I'm going to allow uh, Dr. Bull to introduce himself in a moment, but just to tell you what we're going to talk through. The title is Hypermobility from Mystery to Mainstream in a nutshell. And this is for the whole team. So if you're listening, this is for you as a rheumatologist, a rheumatology specialist nurse, any member of our AHP teams as well. And we hope there's something really useful and relevant for you. Now, I could spend some time introducing uh, Philip at this stage, but I'm going to hand over to you, Dr. Bull, just to tell us a little bit about your background at this stage. Thanks, Will. Um, I trained in rheumatology and medicine at Charing Cross and Westminster Hospitals and was appointed uh, consultant rheumatologist in East Kent Hospitals uh, based in Ashford in Kent in 1990. Uh, it's a typical DGH job uh, in an underdeveloped part of the NHS. Um, but one of the uh, early successes was pioneering uh, rheumatology nursing in that area. I got involved uh, as clinical director for medicine between 1994 and 2010, uh, and therefore was involved in many uh, service developments and uh, retired from full-time NHS work in 2014. And since then, and what I'm doing now is a combination of teaching. I have a, an honorary senior lecturer post uh, for Guy's Kings and St. Thomas's. So I teach medical students down in Kent. Um, I work clinically at the one hospital in Ashford, uh, and I'm the GP education lead for that small orthopedic unit where we run an evening program uh, for GPs uh, to plug into. And I'm the lead medical advisor uh, for the Hypermobility Syndromes Association charity. And uh, why we are here is because I'm the chair of the BSR Hypermobility Special Interest Group. Uh, and here we are talking about hypermobility. Great, fabulous introduction. And as I say, we're delighted to have you uh, joining us for our hypermobility focus. We we put a list of who we would like to invite and top of the list was your name. So we're really delighted you've been able to spend this time uh, with us. Uh, we've got maybe 30 minutes, 40 minutes or so on this podcast. So I really hope for you listening, this is something that you can really delve deep into. And also there's other resources associated with this podcast through the January e-learning. So for the next uh, period we've got together, firstly, we're going to talk about how we can help you uh, to diagnose and understand the hypermobility syndromes. We're going to think about recognising the relationship between hypermobility, fibromyalgia, GI dysfunction, dysautonomia, mast cell activation syndrome, neurodiversity and other associated manifestations. And I think we'll talk a little bit about long COVID as well. So although this is hypermobility, it's a broad area that we're going to talk through on this session. We're going to focus on the importance of early diagnosis and think about an approach to management for hypermobility. And uh, we're really looking forward to having this concept of us demystifying some of the medically unexplained symptoms we see in this cohort of people, as well as then finishing off with Philip introducing us to some of his excellent educational resources and also some other things he's pulled together from colleagues. 
So I'm hopeful that people listening will already know the answer to this question, but I'm going to ask you, uh, Philip, just to talk us through. So why should uh, the rheumatology multidisciplinary team educate themselves in the field of hypermobility? Good question. Um, firstly, hypermobility can be quickly identified with a few simple questions. And it's true to say that we're already seeing these patients uh, and that we could probably uh, um, easily improve uh, the outcome for these patients by paying more attention to this area. Current provision of um, for this group of patients is unacceptably inadequate. And if I can give you an example of what happens in the early arthritis clinics, um, we have uh, looked at this and up to 60% of patients leave the early arthritis clinic without a diagnosis or treatment plan. In this group of patients are um, patients with fibromyalgia and hypermobility uh, going away without, um, uh, you know, the best options offered to them. Uh, the other point about hypermobility is that standard pain medication strategies don't work in this group of patients. And that needs to be taken on board because um, we're wasting a lot of money by um, suggesting certain uh, therapeutic approaches which don't work. And then for me, the um, uh, interesting uh, upside is uh, of, of the pandemic is that, that we've noted their shared features with long COVID, such as fibromyalgia, mast cell activation, uh, and POTS, uh, dysautonomia. Uh, and, and we have some transferable existing strategies uh, within uh, our, our experience of managing hypermobility, which could be uh, applied in this area. And then the other thing is that uh, um, I think understanding hypermobility benefits the general medical awareness uh, and management of medically unexplained symptoms, which rheumatologists are often uh, asked to um, uh, look into. And uh, finally, the importance of empowering the whole rheumatology team and for each member to play a part uh, in upskilling and using the educational opportunities which uh, exist, uh, which we'll talk about in this podcast. Um, this is why uh, I think um, physios, rheumatology nurses, podiatrists and OTs uh, are so important and well placed uh, to help this group of patients. So clearly uh, an area of passion for you, Philip. What what got you into working in hypermobility? Because it's not necessarily something that everyone would offer at DGH. What was your kind of journey into this area? Yes, uh, well, you know, my job was very much, um, you know, a typical uh, DGH job with a cohort of rheumatoids uh, and uh, inflammatory disease, which was my main purpose. But going back to 1990, uh, when I was appointed a consultant, I attended two residential physiotherapy courses, which I found really helpful in um, dealing with um, uh, in some of the more mechanical problems uh, with my patients. But I met two physios, um, uh, one of whom was really experienced in hypermobility and produced great results. Um, patients came back and uh, so from seeing this particular individual, um, and and it, it it led to a great understanding of hypermobility on my part, and also uh, another physiotherapist I worked closely with, trained in Perth, with David Butler from NOI, the Neuro Orthopedic Institute, um, and I therefore understood uh, early on the importance of mechanics of the nervous system and myofascial tissues and muscle balance which are key to the management of hypermobility. And knowing this stuff has helped me as a rheumatologist because, of course, um, a certain percentage of our inflammatory uh, conditions uh, will have coexistent hypermobility. 
Um, and the third point, which was quite personal, is, is I, I was fortunate to enjoy, enjoy good health throughout my career. But in 2010, I had personal experience with burnout, anxiety, uh, and fatigue. Um, and this was multifactorial. Uh, my main symptoms were anxiety uh, and fatigue. Um, and I realized at that point that almost any symptom can be generated by anxiety. And, and those listening won't necessarily really understand anxiety unless you've experienced pathological anxiety. Um, but uh, the upshot of this is uh, what doesn't kill you uh, makes you stronger. And I think, um, you know, uh, I've been able to recover uh, given the right tools and taking the right decisions. And, and for me, this meant retiring uh, at the age uh, of 60. And um, uh, as a result, I've been able to take forward uh, my main interest of hypermobility. Um, in terms of what helped me get through this difficult period, um, some some big decisions, um, and then courses or, and learning about mindfulness, mindful self-compassion, uh, Alexander technique, and understanding solution-focused psychotherapy. And uh, so this has um, equipped me with um, a, a better way uh, to deal with uh, these this group of patients with chronic symptoms for whatever cause. Um, I think, my motive. Sorry, I think that's um, really you know brave of you to share that, Philip. And I, I I do send my sympathies to hear you've been through that kind of experience. But you know, burnout in the NHS is probably something we're all on the verge of to some degree or another. So I think it's quite remarkable that you've taken that experience to kind of broaden your education. And it sounds like you've been a lifelong learner. And I really like the idea of you as a newly qualified consultant thinking oh gosh, what do I need to know about? And where can I find those things that perhaps I haven't picked up thus far? And I think that speaks volumes for what you've kind of um, done in this area. But excuse me interrupting you. <laughs> no, thank, thank you for that. That's exactly the point uh, I'm trying to get across. Um, uh, and, and my motivation now is trying to change the way people think about hypermobility. Um, uh, importantly, um, uh, you know, once you understand these simple concepts, you will find these patients rewarding to treat rather than challenging. Um, and, and as a rheumatologist, I, I, I'm now comfortable tackling complex non-inflammatory patients. Uh, I think of us uh, as being the Sherlock Holmes of the medical profession. Uh, and, and for me, it is a fascinating area of medicine. It's, it's a new science. Um, so um, the exciting areas moving forward um, are the sort of links with long COVID symptomatology uh, and, you know, what that means uh, in terms of uh, fibromyalgia, dysautonomia and mast cell activation, which I'm sure we are seeing all the time. And then the other exciting area is, you know, the microbiome and nutrition. And I'm particularly interested in uh, Tim Spector's work in this area and, and would like to see that knowledge um, uh, taken into the field of hypermobility to help understand how that relates to fatigue and other symptoms. And as I've said before, this is a whole new science. Um, so quite a lot to think about when we think about kind of how we assess and manage I'm going to be slightly selfish here on behalf of my profession and pin you down on kind of the physiotherapy element of that I think there's a broad team of the multidisciplinary professionals that could be involved from what you've described what do you think from a physiotherapy point of view as a focus you know and how we think about treating these patients the reason I ask is you know we're seeing a, a shift in some of our more senior physiotherapists in rheumatology retiring or moving elsewhere so we've got a new 
cohort of clinicians coming through and perhaps without that kind of hands-on treatment experience because of the way the profession is changing and the way the NHS delivers physiotherapy. I think there's probably some interesting things for physiotherapists or for anyone treating from a manual point of view, podiatrist, occupational therapist. What what do you think might be the the hook that 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 brings in these new people to our rheumatology yeah. teams? Yeah, well, well, my humble understanding of physio is, um, for example, patients with uh, chronic spinal dysfunction have both uh, local and referred pain to the from those areas, but are also likely to encounter susceptibility to overuse in peripheral muscular musculoskeletal tissues too. For example, you know, uh, one possible source of this susceptibility could be uh, an alteration in axopasmic flow uh, from chronic uh, but subtle nerve dysfunction. Um, and this neural phenomenon may lead to soft tissue inflammation. For example, C6 root dysfunction has been shown to be related to persistent um, lateral epicondylitis at the elbow. But I, I don't think in terms of medical education, that kind of link has been um, uh, understood, and that's where we've got a lot to learn from our physio con- uh, colleagues. And also, one of the things that I think is particularly important for hypermobile patients is, um, and patients generally, the importance of physio in the recovery phase of any injury to return movement to normal, uh, rather than the uh, standard treatment which people get from um, primary care, which is two weeks uh, anti-inflammatories and rest. Mm. Um, that 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 may leave an unresolved um, uh, movement uh, issue. Yeah, thank you. So we'll go back to the broader picture and get all of the MDT back involved for this question. So moving on to diagnosis, Philip, how would you go about diagnosing a hypermobility syndrome, and what are the issues uh, for you around this area? Okay, you've got to start off with some some key questions. And it's not rocket science. Uh, we're, we're asking about joint instability or pain. We're looking for physical signs such as bruising or stretch marks, fatigue, um, GI symptoms such as reflux, nausea, constipation or hernias, um, signs of dysautonomia, including palpitations, uh, tachycardia or postural dizziness. Um, patients get bladder symptoms. Sometimes the symptoms are worse around menstruation. Um, uh, psychological uh, uh, issues such as anxiety uh, or depression are linked and also neurodiversity. And uh, you also need to find out whether the family are affected. And most important for adults is to look back uh, because your joints get tighter as you go through life. So there may be no visible signs of hypermobility in your 40s mm-hmm. when, in fact, as a teenager, you were really stretchy and bendy. Um, I recommend in terms of um, identifying hypermobility using um, the um, five-point questionnaire from Hakim and Graham uh, from 2013. And these are five simple questions which will uh, identify uh, hypermobility if, you're, if, if you ask these questions in this order. So can you place your hands on the floor without bending your knees? Can you bend your thumb to touch your forearm? As a child, could you amuse your friends by contorting your body into strange shapes? Could you do the splits or the crab? Uh, as a teenager, uh, did your shoulder or kneecap dislocate on more than one occasion? And the final question is, do you consider yourself as double jointed? Um, so I think uh, that 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 will identify um, hypermobility quite easily. 
Um, one important thing that I wanted to emphasize is not to exclude hypermobility on the basis of a low Baton score. It's not a diagnostic test. It's important that you understand the Baton score. It's got limitations. Now you're only looking at nine joints. It shares the limitations of the DAS 28. Mm. You must look elsewhere, particularly the ankles, feet and hips. And also don't forget the temporomandibular joints. So uh, again, that's really important uh, take home message. So the other thing that we need to emphasize the importance of early diagnosis. Um, you are seeing hypermobile patients uh, frequently in your clinics. You may identify it. Sometimes it gets overlooked. But if, if, if you miss the opportunity to make the diagnosis, you are creating a diagnostic delay during which time patients go around in circles. There are wasted GP consultations. There are wasted hospital appointments. And sometimes patients end up on unnecessary medications and the side effects that go with that. Patients' perspective is that they end up with no diagnosis, they're in limbo, and they have a significant impact on well-being as a result of misdiagnosis and inappropriate treatment. So I'm saying, time to do something different. Give the patient a better chance of finding their own way. Um, now, you might say, well, where's all the evidence here? Well, the evidence... Um, was collated following a meeting in New York in 2016, and it's published in the American Journal of Medical Genetics, March 2017. And there are chapters uh, on the classification, the new classification, which we'll talk about in a minute, yeah. pain, physio, fatigue, dysautonomia, gastrointestinal, psychological, orthopedics, and neurological aspects of the hypermobility syndromes. So it's all there um, for those who uh, might feel sceptical about the evidence base here. But in 2017, uh, a new set of diagnostic criteria came out. Um, and broadly, when I'm looking at, um, uh, when I'm explaining to patients about hypermobility, I remind them that the, you know, 10%, 15% of the population has a symptomatic hypermobility. You'll see those um, uh, in the Olympics, in the gymnastic team, and you'll see it uh, on Saturday evening when Strictly Come Dancing with the, the professional dancers. And then in the middle, what broadly used to be called the hypermobility syndrome, uh, is now uh, renamed, um, although it's not exactly the same, but hypermobility spectrum disorder. And, and this this is uh, where no gene has been identified. And uh, in on the on the right side, uh, of my um, graphic, which you'll find um, uh, in the e-learning module, there is um, uh, uh, the rare stuff, uh, Stanlos syndrome, uh, where 12 genes have been identified, and uh, other rare stuff, including Marfan's and osteogenesis imperfecta, and not to forget the Down syndrome uh, can be associated uh, with hypermobility. In the Ehlers Stanlos syndromes, uh, there is the entity of hypermobile EDS, which um, uh, there is no gene identified. And this really um, is, is much more common uh, than, um, than has previously been thought to be the case. But, so you're basically going to mostly be looking at hypermobility spectrum disorder and hypermobile EDS. And to make it easy to differentiate between the two, there is a checklist, a uh, tick box, which I think you should be familiar with in terms of looking for the clinical features that differentiate between the two. And then, of course, um, 
the big question is, you know, when is genetic testing indicated? Well, there are a number of features you should look for, marfanoid body habitus, um, ocular signs, very stretchy skin or unusually widened atrophic scars, large unusual bruising or hematomas, organ rupture, um, and a personal or family history of young onset unexplained arterial dissection, aneurysms, or significant hemorrhage, just to, to make sure that we're not missing um, vascular EDS. Uh, significant kyphoscoliosis is another thing to look for, and recurrent large hernias. And so uh, in my practice, the requirement for genetic testing is very infrequent. Um, uh, and so we don't need to, uh, you know, worry too much about that unless uh, you, you've, you've ticked the box in the things that I've just mentioned. And it's important to understand that all patients are treated along the same lines, um, with the exception of um, uh, vascular EDS and Marfan's. Uh, where it's um, where specialist uh, assessment is really important. So the next step in all of this is to understand that there are just eight key comorbidities. And and I have a the spidergram, uh, which uh, we can't show you in this podcast, um, but is um, in the e-learning module from uh, developed by Jane Simmons uh, and colleagues. Very helpful in organizing the patient's thinking because they often come in, they've got a lot of brain fog. But the eight coexistent uh, things are fatigue, psychological issues, dysautonomia, gastrointestinal symptoms, mast cell activation, urogenital symptoms. Many of these patients have uh, irritable bladder and recurrent UTIs. Then finally, neuromusculoskeletal symptoms and pain. Now, let's think about the importance of the overlap with fibromyalgia. Um, I think it is really important to know how to manage fibromyalgia well because 18% of patients with rheumatoid have fibro, 14% of ankylosing spondylitis, but the overlap for hypermobility syndromes is 80%. Now, just think about that for a minute. Up and down the country, we've got pain clinics uh, in whom patients uh, with fibromyalgia are frequently seen and it's quite possible it is my belief uh, that many of these patients have underlying hypermobility for whom a management strategy um, can be uh, easily implemented once you know uh, about uh, what's uh, in this e-learning module and I'll, I'll just pick up on that if you don't mind philip I mean, i've heard you present this before and i tweeted that figure and it got a lot of interest online because I'll just, for those listening, that was 80% of our fibromyalgia patients might or will have a hypermobile element to their presentation, which is shocking, really, and it's not something I was particularly aware of until I heard you say, oh, yeah, that does make sense, because actually we do see a lot of those symptoms carrying over. That's absolutely that's absolutely the point. Um I'd like to move on to, you know, wh why some patients with hypermobility are so challenging. And, and uh, you know, talking to my colleagues, I, I, it's very common to find that somebody's attitude towards hypermobility uh, has emanated from uh, a difficult experience with one or more hypermobile patients. Um, and and why, why would that happen? Well, firstly, you know, we're, we're not well educated in, in hypermobility. 
and we have time constraints, we're looking for inflammatory disease, we may have our own unconscious bias. The patient will often come in with a complex story. Uh, they may be frustrated. Uh, we may have differing priorities in terms of what we are looking for. And also this issue of neurodiversity uh, is really important. Um, so understanding that patients um, are, neuro are frequently neurodiverse um, is, 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 critical, is a critical take-home message. But I would say that if you give the patients the right diagnosis and a management plan, they can and will mostly sort themselves out, uh, moving from the unmanageable to a manageable situation for the majority. Um, I wanted to just touch on uh, Marcel activation syndrome, um, which will, of course, become very much more mainstream now that there's this association with long COVID. Um, but in this entity, uh, mast cells inappropriately release mediators, particularly histamine, and give rise to a lot of odd symptoms which would fall into the medically unexplained uh, syndrome, uh, symptom category. So you get dermatological symptoms, flushing, itching, uh, possibly um, uh, anaphylaxis, uh, cardiovascular uh, symptoms with dizziness and syncope, GI symptoms with diarrhea, nausea and vomiting, brain fog, uh, respiratory symptoms, um, again, uh, fatigue, and food and drug intolerances, and feeling cold all the time, which is something you hear occasionally that you often can't explain. Um, so that that's something which we go into uh, in the e-learning module, which is, uh, you know, part of this new science of understanding the comorbidities with hypermobility. And another little interesting observation which we don't understand is insensitivity to local anesthesia. Um, this comes up in dental work or regional blocks or failed epidurals and biopsies that need more local anaesthetic. So that's a fact that you should just take on board if you're not already aware. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, that was the idea of how we diagnose. But of course, it touched a little bit on how we manage. But let me let point you towards focusing on that next, Philip. So how would you approach the management of these people living with hypermobility? Okay. Um, well, um, it's the age old tricky, um, issue with the NHS with limited time, but, uh, listening carefully and giving time, uh, is the key to getting to a proper diagnosis. And then, of course, as you would expect to examine and investigate appropriately to make sure that the hypermobility is relevant and is what we're dealing with as opposed to something else. And then the single most useful thing any one of us listening to this podcast can do is to validate those symptoms and give a workable explanation and a proper diagnosis, which is not rocket science. Um, and then importantly, um, I would move on to a medication review um, and just re-emphasize that the usual pain medications don't work for the condition and that you will find that patients will come to you and they're often on a lot of stuff that are making things worse. And then I would move on to make a management plan around the spider assessment tool uh, so that you would look and try and assess um, you know the issue of fatigue psychology dysautonomia gi symptoms mast cell activation urogenital neuromusculoskeletal and pain those are the eight things uh, that you just need to ask about when you're using the spider you could use it as a visual analog scale uh, and this really helps the patient to organize their thinking because they've got brain fog and they've got about 10, you know, that's eight or 10 different facets that they're struggling with.
I then would um, just like to comment on thoughtful prescribing and de-prescribing. Uh, most pain medications do not work in fibromyalgia and hypermobility. You've really got to avoid narcotics and opioids. Mm-hmm. Um, things like gabapentin, there's no evidence that they work. Anti-inflammatories generally do not work, although we sometimes see a, a, a low level of inflammation in some patients with hypermobility, but by and large, um, uh, in, medi- in pain medications, uh, the usual pyramid uh, is not the appropriate way forward. And then moving on um, to getting the patient to understand their condition, getting on the same page with resources and signposting. I've then organized a detailed physiotherapy assessment to identify the mechanical factors and don't forget about the myofascial tissue in that. And then with the site, depending on, you know, which uh, are the predominant issues, um, if it's psychological, solution-focused psychotherapy and mindful self-compassion uh, for psychological well-being. Mindful self-compassion, if you're not aware, um, there is a huge amount of uh, evidence around the benefits um, for both patients and us as NHS employees, for that matter. And it combines mindfulness techniques with um, self-compassion and um, not beating yourself up all the time, uh, which is something which uh, drains your energy. The right type of exercise is important. Um, uh, so patients will need to be given an exercise regime. Some Some people might go for yoga with caution, bearing in mind that most of the hypermobile patients do not need to be exercised beyond the normal limit of joints. Aqua therapy, if you if you're if you're somewhere where you've got a hydrotherapy pool, it's a good place to start. Place to start for those patients who can't uh, be um, have too much hands-on treatment. And um, moving on to exercise, there there is an online approach um, of modified Pilates from Jeannie Dubon called the Zebra Club, which I would which has been evaluated. Uh, and I would uh, recommend. Um, in my practice, I'm a great believer in the Alexander technique, um, uh, uh, and that's a, a movement um, uh, modality which uh, we explain in detail in the uh, e-module. Um, and Tai Chi is the one thing where there's some evidence around it being uh, more effective in fibromyalgia than graded uh, 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 exercise, exercise um uh, rehabilitation regimes and then i think uh this is not a one-stop shop they will need empathic follow-up with guidance and a holistic approach to life including stuff particularly around pacing uh, and 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 sleep to create a a new norm for these patients and i would say that you can never be sure which technique um, is going to work or resonate with the patient uh, i recently wrote an article on this which might be of interest entitled which therapist uh, but it starts and hinges on a therapist who has the interest and skill set and personality to help with these individuals and enough time, which is not easily available uh, within the NHS. So um, the next point to make is do use the charities for professional uh, and patient support, both for your own education, but also put the patients in contact with reliable websites such as the HMSA uh, EDS Support UK, POTS UK, or the Earl of Stanloff Society. And then in terms of um, reading, uh, there's a, a really excellent book called Understanding Hypermobile EDS and HSD by Claire Smith. 
which is available from Red House Publications. Um, it's produced on a non-profit making basis. Um, the the proceeds um, are, are donated uh, to one of the charities, um, but it has got um, uh, everyone in the UK and um, abroad who's interested in hypermobility contributing to that, but it's it's done from a patient perspective. I would recommend that each uh, rheumatology department buys a copy. Fabulous. A, a fantastic um, amount of things for us to think about, Philip. And just as we draw the podcast to a close, I'd like to ask one final question, which is what does the current provision look like nationally and how would you change this? Um, yeah, uh, current provision is poor. Uh, there's no patient for these patients to go, but there are educational opportunities uh, for us to develop. And one is um, the HMSA education model, uh, which is based on the Kent model, which we've been running for a few years in Kent. And the second one is is Project Echo. Um, and uh, I'm not going to dwell on that now because uh, time is, is short. Um, but what I would say is um, that the multidisciplinary care web uh, that we have would look pretty similar um, to something that you would put in for any chronic disease uh, with the patient at the centre, um, the community pain team and the GP and uh, uh, specialist physiotherapists and OTs and podiatrists all pay uh, a key role in that. Um, the um, HMSA education module um, has uh, a, a number of very useful uh, resources, including how to run your own meeting and set up local masterclasses. It's got video resources. It's got medical professional talks, patient management talks, patient stories. Um, they can help in setting up local patient groups. And I've even written a, a, an article on guidance for commissioners, although I, do, I, I think it's unlikely that in this environment that commissioners will be commissioning hypermobility services. It's about making best use of what's already available um uh, and and in that we're we're searching for local champions so if you feel inspired um please please make contact now the um uh, eds echo is a series of programs and courses for healthcare professionals across all disciplines who want to improve their ability to care for people with eds um and uh, i would really recommend that uh, as, as a good place for 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 cpd and then coming, you know, as we are to the end of this 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 uh, podcast, um, uh, we do have a handout which covers the, the main points. Just, just be aware of the five-point questionnaire. Know the common associations. Know about when to refer for genetic testing and evaluate your own approach to this. You don't need to follow my particular approach, but, you know, depending on your local resources, who's interested, you can get a – a team together uh, to help with this group of patients. And um, Philip, you've kindly collated some further links for us to uh, kind of continue our journey in learning about hypermobility and improving the service we offer for this uh, cohort of patients. Um, that list will be available on the place, hopefully, where people have downloaded this podcast. If not, they can go back to the BSR eLearning homepage and find those resources i'm just going to skip to uh, our, our summary then from this point if that's okay so firstly to say thank you very much uh, philip for your time i've learned a lot and i'm sure everyone listening has learned a lot 
as well. Um, as I say, please go back to the e-learning site and find some more bits and pieces. And um, you'd, you'd mention a, a few other plans for the new year, Philip. Um, um, yes, I'm hoping that um, we can uh, get a bid for the BSR guidelines in 2023. Mm. Um, and uh, I'm hopefully, hopeful that this will be uh, accepted and, and allow us a really, you know, uh, generally accepted source of uh, reference for this. Mm. So I think that covers everything we wanted to. Loads more to learn, but we're aware of your time, those listening. So once again, thanks for logging on. Look out for our uh, features uh, next month where we're focusing on occupational therapy and the hand. But for now, your January is dedicated to hypermobility. And please do come back and listen to this resource and have a look at other things on the website uh, as well. Thank you for listening to Talking Rheumatology Spotlight, brought to you by BSR. Please do rate, share and subscribe through your favourite podcast app.